This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Hey, very good morning to you. It is Saturday, the 25th of March, 2023, and I am going to be talking to you about role models this morning. Who do we look up to? Why do we look up to them? And why are they necessary? This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Good morning. As I said, it is the 25th of March 2023, and we are here on this Saturday morning to talk about role models today. Um, That is the plan. It is, as I've just said on Twitter, a a departure from what I was going to do. Actually, up until this morning, um, up until just a couple of hours ago, I had another Pedagogy 101 show planned for you. but I had a last minute change of heart because of something that happened yesterday uh, that we'll talk about when we get there. But um, yeah, I'm going to be very honest and say that we are very much off the cuff today because of the last minute change. So as always, if you do have anything that you would like to contribute as we are talking today about role models, please do text in. If you are listening live, you can do that via the Podbean app. You can also call in if you are listening via Podbean, I will be happy to take your call. Alternatively, you can text me. I am at Mr. D. Lester, all one word. Sorry, that's um, that's tweet, not text. I am at Mr. D. Lester, that's all one word. Um, and let me know your thoughts on anything that we are discussing today. Now, I don't know whether it's just me, but I feel like it's been quite a quiet week this week. Um, not a whole lot has gone on in the news. In terms of education, our news has once again been widely dominated by Ofsted. Um, And again, this is something that I will pick up a little bit later on. But um, our very own Flora, who is a head teacher in a primary school, got the call earlier this week and um, initially refused entry to the inspector. Um, She was, as far as I'm concerned, safeguarding the well-being of her staff and of her children. And I think it was a very commendable thing to do. There was an outpouring of support on Twitter at the beginning of the week, which was was lovely to see. Um, as it transpired, and, and I didn't know this, um, so it was interesting to learn, Ofsted inspectors do in fact have a legal right of entry into a school in order to perform a an inspection and in fact not just into a school but into anywhere that an educational activity is taking place so as as far as i read the legislation um which you know i grant perhaps 16 years in teaching i probably should have read before now um but as i read it and understood it 
That means that if, for example, you are taking your children on a trip during um, an inspection, the inspector would have the right to go with you and to enter the place that the trip is taking place. And to me, that raises all kinds of questions, because what judgments would then be made? Because, of course, the place where the trip is taking place um, might not necessarily consent to being judged, particularly if it's not an educational establishment in and of itself. You know, um, in the UK, trip to Cabra's World, to the chocolate factory, is always very, very popular. It's always very fun. Um, or at least it was. And, you know, it's a factory. It's not an educational establishment. While it does, of course, allow school groups in, and so you would hope that it has um, educational outreach programs in place, it seems a bit odd to me that the inspectorate would have the right to just walk into this factory just because a group of children are going on a trip there. So I find that really interesting. Um, something I find a little bit concerning um, from a safeguarding point of view is the fact that the inspectors have a right to entry, a legal right to entry. Um, because as far as I was concerned, as I said, head teachers have the right to refuse entry of anybody onto their premises or should in order to keep their staff and their pupils safe. Um, and so it seems a bit odd to me that anybody can turn up and, and or, or that somebody, I'm sorry, somebody can turn up and flash an Ofsted badge and then have legal entry into a school. I would hope that the legislation allows for at least stalling entry um, of an inspector or of an inspection team until a head teacher or a member of the admin staff have been in touch with Ofsted just to verify the identity of the inspectors. Um, because to me, that's a very, very simple, very obvious safeguarding necessity to make sure that the people who are coming into our schools are in fact authorised to do so. Um, but I don't know, it just, it, it strikes me as a little odd um, that there is in fact legal room for Ofsted to have entry into schools and that there are legal ramifications for heads who don't allow that, um, regardless of what safeguarding they may be doing in order to prevent the entry. Now, as everybody on social media is saying, we're not um, suggesting that schools do not need accountability. We are not suggesting that schools shouldn't have to um, justify what they are doing as being good education. But when we have a system in which schools are essentially pitted against each other, in terms of um, how, in inverted commas, good they are, or how outstanding they are, um, creating this very bizarre competitive nature between schools that doesn't need to exist because catchment areas exist. And so it's not like schools are needing to compete with each other in order to get pupils in. 
uh, because pupils are quite often, particularly in primary, just sent to the schools, um, uh, sent to the school that serves the catchment area in which they live. I couldn't figure out how to phrase that then. Um, it seems very strange that this kind of competition is being promoted. Um, it seems very strange that um, that we are being judged in this way. I don't know. It seems to me quite outdated, quite outmoded. And I think I, I'm not even of the opinion that we need to, to get rid of Ofsted. I know that that is an opinion that has been cited. Um, that is an opinion of many, I think, as an entity. Um, there is no reason for Ofsted not to exist in the same way that Ofqual exists, that Ofcom exists. Uh, you know that the government does have all of these offices, all of these agencies to um, to oversee the different things that they are involved with. But I think in the hundred years in which Ofsted has existed and has been um, vetting schools, it doesn't seem to have changed its approach at all. And again, I could be wrong there, and I'm very, very happy to be corrected. Um, but schooling has changed. And it has changed very rapidly, even if we just look at educational technology, you know, in the 16 years that I've been teaching, um, we have gone from just having dry wipe whiteboards to having smart boards. I remember having lessons at university on how to use a smart board and was then showing the classroom teachers while I was on practice what I had learned so that they could use theirs more effectively. Uh, we have gone through that and the kind of the old style smart boards, the Prometheans, the interactive whiteboards are kind of outdated again now. And we've moved towards more of a display screen model um, for better or for worse. And that's just been in 16 years. And that's just been in terms of how we display information, let alone everything else that has happened. And so I think we do need to look at exactly what schools are supposed to be doing, exactly what schools are supposed to be providing, and then we need any inspectorate to be looking for that. And it should be reframed so that it's not a judgment call, um, so that it's not a case of this school is failing, this school is inadequate as a school, but it should be framed of, okay, this school is not doing what we think schools should be doing, and so this is how it needs to address that. Because if we adopted that kind of model, then Ofsted would be doing with us the same sorts of things that we do with the kids, where we say to them, okay, you're not quite doing what I need you to do in order to be successful in my subject, Therefore, we're just going to change what you're doing ever so slightly. We're going to approach it in a different way. And then you're going to do this and you will be more successful in my subject. And I think if we had that and we had more of a, a culture of support rather than a culture of criticism, particularly in a profession where, as we have seen, you can very easily make it your entire life and your entire identity, particularly if you are in a position of seniority in a school, if you are a head teacher, um, you know, if you are the face of the school, you can very quickly just make that who you are, as opposed to what you do for a living. And I think that's quite normal. I think that's quite natural for people who are attracted into teaching. 
uh, to be the kind of people who do make their profession their identity because we are a caring profession we are a nurturing profession and so i think the the culture of inspection and the culture of observation even if we're coming down to a lower um uh, a lower rung on the ladder and we're just looking at internal performance management that does need to be less about saying oh this person is wonderful or oh this person is inadequate and more about saying okay this is what's going well this is what we can do to improve because there is always room to improvement again it's what we tell the kids and so it is what we need to uh, to live ourselves and these are the steps that need to be taken to address that and then crucially most importantly this is how you can take those steps and through the inspections that i've been involved in it's been that kind of last thing that's missing i will say that through the inspections that that i've been in um i personally have found the judgments to be balanced um, I haven't always agreed. Um, I haven't always thought that the inspectors came in being particularly fair. Um, I haven't always liked the inspectors who have come in. But I do believe that the inspections have always been balanced. There have, there have always been, these are the positives and these are the rooms for improvement. And for me, what was missing were those very purposeful action steps so that when the inspectorate comes back, they know exactly what they're looking for. They can then reframe it so that they are looking for the improvements, even in an outstanding school where there is logically still room for improvement. They can be looking for those and looking to see what the school has done um, in order to address that, because that's what we all want. That's what we all want in the same way that no teacher plans a lesson um, and goes, yes, fantastic. This is going to be the worst lesson I've ever taught. I'm very happy with that. Um, no school as, as a whole wants to be doing poorly by its kids. And so if there is anything that we can do to change, if there is anything that we can do to get better, we want to do that. We want to do that. And, and I think it would be nice if the people who are in charge of our performance management, again, be that at the ground, the chalk face level, where we've all got um, we've all got heads of department, we've all got line managers who are responsible for our professional development, who are responsible for our performance management. Um, again, right up to the very top when we have the inspectorate come in, that culture of, of support and of nurturing and of this is what you're doing right and this is these are the steps that you can take in order to get better would be much better than just coming in and saying okay this is what's going well this is what's going wrong just fix what's going wrong and we'll come back in six months as far as i'm concerned it's all about modeling the good and providing what is needed to get better instead of just throwing out into the universe this should be better this show is brought to you in partnership with john cat educational a leading publisher of books directories educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the uk and beyond
Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. This is Teachers Talk Radio. And this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The latest budget has come under scrutiny from many quarters with many working in education frustrated about a lack of focus on funding for education as a whole. Many have made comments on the £4 billion plan for childcare announced by Chancellor Jeremy Hunt, with Paul Waugh writing an opinion piece for the I newspaper. In the piece, Waugh refers to gaping holes in the plan to provide free childcare for working parents of under fives. Childcare providers have already warned of the lack of funding detailed in the plan, and school leaders have expressed concerns that more money will need to be found from their already stretched budgets if the proposed wraparound care is to be provided. Critics have pointed out that the new policy doesn't apply to those in apprenticeships or training, and that there is no plan to ensure that an adequately trained workforce will be in place to deliver. The government has responded by proposing changes to the staff-to-child ratio, moving from 1 to 4 to 1 to 5, but this has also raised concerns about dilution of care. Since the budget announcement, many local authorities have published figures detailing how many children might qualify for a place in childcare under the scheme versus how many places are on offer at this time. Figures broadly suggest that, across the country, demand would far exceed places available. Many media outlets report on talks between England's education unions and government ministers. The talks will be met with what both sides describe as a period of calm for two weeks, with no further strike dates announced. It comes after breakthrough talks with unions representing other public sector workers, including nurses and ambulance crews. The National Education Union said in a statement that it had, along with the NASUWT, NAHT and ASCOL, agreed to intensive talks with Education Secretary Gillian Keegan. The announcement comes after walkouts in Wales and Scotland were postponed whilst unions ballot members on improved offers from the respective devolved governments. In Sunderland, the Echo reports on how former Lioness Jill Scott is helping girls have equal opportunities in football after a pitch in Jarrow was opened in her honour. Scott was part of the England team who lifted the Euro 22 trophy last summer. While she's retired from playing the game, her involvement continues. In a speech as part of the opening of the new facilities, she said that girls and women's football would take priority on the new pitches. The pitches boast floodlights and 3G playing surfaces and were jointly funded by the government, the FA and the Premier League's Football Foundation. The new facilities link closely to the letter Scott and her teammates wrote to Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss, then Conservative leadership candidates, demanding all girls get the chance to play football at school. Scott said, I fell in love with football at school and pointed out that everyone should have the chance to do the same. Finally, ITV News reports on comedian Jason Manford's surprise appearance at a Leeds primary school. The comic was invited to the school after a video of him conducting an audience at one of his live shows in a sing-along of popular assembly songs went viral. The Assembly's Bangers sketch has since inspired a fundraising single, with profits donated to food bank charity the Trussell Trust. The comedian joined in with renditions of This Little Light of Mine, Lord of the Dance, and he's got the whole world in his hands.
Footage of the visit is already making the rounds on Twitter. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to talk about Deepfake. Deepfake uses artificial intelligence to create an image or video that appears to be real, but isn't. Amazingly, it's quite easy to do. It starts with a video or image of the target being uploaded to a Deepfake provider, Deepfake provider, found via a quick internet search. The AI then takes over and maps the landmark points of the target's face, just like the filters you find on popular social media apps. This is then overlaid onto another video or text-based script, and hey presto, you have control of what he is saying doing, wearing, or even not wearing. Oh wow. Detecting a deep fake is getting harder and harder. It started with people not blinking, but that was fixed pretty quickly. Sadly, there are lots of people making use of this for the wrong reasons, and our young people are being left to wonder what is real and what isn't. There's even something called a shallow fake, where an original video or audio is doctored using simpler editing tools to change the original message. The main questions you need to ask yourself are, why is this video being shared? When was the video published? Is the message something you'd never expect from that person? and who gains from this video. As always, if you have a tech question, why not send it to at TT Radio Official. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. A funny thing happened to me on my way to work yesterday. Um, I wish that I could say a funny thing happened to me on the way to the forum. But as I pointed out on the show last week, um, I'm not that interesting and I don't actually go anywhere other than to work. So if funny things are ever going to happen to me, they're going to be on the way to school. Um, So if anything did happen to me on my way to school yesterday, I was stopped in the street. Um, A lady was walking her dogs. I quite often see dog walkers on my walk to school. Um, And the lady who I recognise, I think she works in our local pet shop, Um, although I'm not sure I know that I seeing her around um she called out as i was working excuse me and so of course immediately all the thoughts went running through my head okay she's going to ask you for directions that's fine let's just hope you can remember where anything is in this town that you've lived in in your entire life um she then said to me are you mr lester and in that moment i went through everything that i've ever said to any child i've ever encountered to figure out what I might have said that would have made a parent angry with me. And I said, yes. Um, And she went on to tell me a story about how um, I had taught her two children. Um, It must be be 11, 12 years ago now, because it was in the school that I was working in before the one that I'm currently in. So in my previous school. Um, She said, you know, my boys are... Uh, 16 and 19 now they're doing languages and they still keep talking about you and um, everything that you had um, that you that you did for them that you provided for them and so I just wanted to to let you know that you really do make a difference Uh, and then she just kind of smiled at me and she walked off before I could say anything Um, and I thought it was really lovely it was a really nice thing for her to do because she didn't need to stop me Um, she didn't need to say that she could have just walked on by. She didn't even need to, you know, she, she didn't know that I was me. Uh, she had to check. But it was nice that she did that. It was it was very kind of her. And I then thought about the impact that we as teachers have 
without without realizing it sometimes um because it's not my this is going to sound really strange so i hope that i can explain it properly it's not my intention to have an impact um as far as i'm concerned i'm not important uh my lessons are the things that are important i would much rather that my children left my lessons remembering the french or the chinese or the japanese or the latin or whatever it is i've been teaching them rather than remembering me uh because the reason that i'm in teaching is to share my interest in language to share how important i think language is and it is actually one of my ambitions not to be remembered i would love to not be remembered um i think that would be great if what stuck was my lesson if what stuck was my subject and not me as a person uh clearly i'm failing in that ambition um but then so it, it got me thinking about the relationships that we build with the young people that we teach uh their perception of us that of course we can never ever um control you don't control how somebody perceives you you don't control what somebody thinks about you all you control is how you behave around that person uh as teachers we control how we deliver our lessons we don't control how those lessons are received by the children um and so we are i suppose in our profession willingly or not role models for our young people and and that kind of tallied with what i was saying earlier on in the show about flora and and about what she did this week because um i tweeted my support after she tweeted at the beginning of the week and and in fact my my retweet i added my opinion that this is what leadership looks like so in that moment i as a teacher was looking at flora as a role model and going yes this is what i think should be being done this is how i think her teacher should be safeguarding her children and her staff and so i think all of that kind of came together uh in my head this morning as you know i want to talk about role models i want to think about what role models in schools look like um i want to talk about why we are role models um willingly or not and the kind of the responsibility that that puts on our shoulders again willingly or not and how we can make sure that we can profit from that how we can make sure that we can make the most of that to to really um boost the impact that we have because if we are going to be remembered if we are going to have an impact we want to be remembered for the right reasons um a couple of weeks ago i did a show called why bother teaching where i had lots and lots of stories from my colleagues and from other teachers on social media about why we went into teaching and i told the story of my friend marie who um went into teaching because of one of the government adverts about how everybody remembers a good teacher and she felt inspired by that uh you know she wanted to be that or she wants to be she strives to be that good teacher that people remember and so i wonder if you know given that we are remembered given that our children do remember us do we have a responsibility to try to be that good teacher 
is it now part of our job to make sure that everything that we do is about building these positive memories for our young children? Is it about being a positive role model, not just within our subject, although that is vitally important, I'll talk about that in a second, uh, but also just in terms of being a person? Do we need to model being good people so that the children in our care become good people? Um, I would certainly say that the teacher training agencies in England and Wales think so, because we have a whole section of our teaching standards dedicated to how we live our personal lives, dedicated to being upstanding members of the community, uh, not bringing the profession into disrepute, um, essentially earning that right to be able to sign off somebody's passport photo, I suppose. And so there are all of these things, all of these kinds of added pressures for teachers that we don't always recognise are there. Uh, but that are there and that we need to think about. So when I was prepping for the show this morning, um, I was I, I looked up what is a role model? What does that actually mean? And interestingly, pretty much everything I found were lesson plans. The internet is full of lesson plans on role modeling for all key stages. So if you find yourself doing a life skills or a CPSHE lesson about role models, just Google what is a role model and you will find hundreds of lessons that you can just deliver. Um, but there's very little in terms of what it means to be a professional role model, to be a role model in a uh, professional setting. But I did find something from Indeed.com. Um, the article is written by the Indeed editorial team. It's from February of this year, February the 4th, 2023. Uh, and it's called Professional Role Models, Definition, Traits, and Benefits. I will tweet out a link um, towards the end of the show so that you can go ahead and read this um, guide for yourself if you want to. But I thought it had some really interesting ideas for us to unpack. Once again, I will say that if you want to engage with anything that I'm talking about on the show today, please do text in via the Podbean app. You can call in if you are listening on Podbean, or you can tweet me. I am at Mr. D. Lester. That's M-R-D-L-E-S-T-E-R, all one word, no punctuation. Uh, and I will be very happy to hear from you. So according to the Indeed editorial team, a role model is, and I quote, someone who has the specific traits and skills that people strive to achieve and enact. These people can inspire others to perform better work or develop particular skills. Understanding the definition, characters and importance of a role model can help you identify one in your workplace or help you become a role model for others. So straight off the bat, actually, this article boils down everything that I want to talk about today. So I think maybe I should just tweet out the link to the article and then I can end the show early and go and have another cup of coffee. Um, but I don't think my bosses at Teach Talk Radio will be very happy if I did that. So we will talk it through instead. What I find really interesting here is that that dichotomy of inspire others to perform better work or to develop particular skills. Because as teachers, we are doing both. So as a language teacher, 
I want to make sure that my students work better. I need to make sure that they understand uh, good revision techniques, for example. My year nines have had their exams this week. Um, and as far as I can see, one of the point of Key Stage 3 exams is to help children to develop revision strategies for uh, moving into their GCSE years. My year 10s have got their exams coming up just after Easter. So I've spent some time this week talking to them about different revision strategies that they might use. Um, every time we mark a book, that is to help our children perform better work. Every time we challenge unacceptable behavior, that's helping them to perform better work. So a big part of our job is that first um, definition of being a role model, the first half of that definition of being a role model. And then we have that second part to develop particular skills. And that's where our subject comes into play. Either the specific subject that we teach for those of us in secondary or the range of subjects that we teach for my colleagues who are primary class teachers. And so just by nature of that definition from indeed.com, the teaching profession is a role model profession. But then so is anything that we do with children. So again, I know that I have an audience who are writers, um, and I know that a subset of those audience are writers for children. And again, we there is that same responsibility there to inspire the children who read their books to perform better work and to help the children who read their books develop particular skills. There is obviously the the impact that comes from the story you know what is in story that's being told what lessons are they learning from the story but then there are the very um the very real pedagogical impacts of the language that you use in writing your story the words that you expose the children to the the ease with which they can read your book that is helping to develop their reading skills their literacy skills so pretty much regardless of our profession, if anybody comes into contact with children, if you are helping them to perform better work or develop a particular skill, you are being a role model for them. And of course that is a, a privilege and it is a responsibility. And it's really important that that is something that is taken seriously in my opinion. A role model, uh, the career, the, the indeed.com article goes on to say, is someone who others may emulate or admire because they are efficient or skilled in some way. Role models, and this is really important, I think, role models usually try to learn as much as they can to better themselves, but remain humble and respectful to others. And again, I think that as teachers, that's a big, big thing that we should be modeling to our young people. Because of course, there is the idea that teachers are the ultimate authority figure. 
and that we know everything about our given subject or we know everything about everything. Uh, particularly if you teach very young children, uh, you will find that you as the teacher do become kind of the, the, the pinnacle of knowledge and, and what you say outweighs what everybody else in their life says. But I think it's important for children to understand that even though we are the teachers, even though we are the ones who know enough about our subject to be able to teach it to other people, who know our subject in enough depth that we can explain it in a way that is accessible, there is still more for us to learn. Because with what we teach, there is so much breadth and depth that we can never be the ultimate authority. I'm doing my educational doctorate, as I've mentioned once or twice um, on the show since I started back in February. And one of the things that we've talked about is the, the kind of niche. You know, you find your niche and you become the authority on this one specific thing about which you have written your dissertation. And the way that that works is you do choose something that is very niche. You choose the, the smallest slice of the educational pie and you write your dissertation on that and you become the authority in that. And you can become an absolute authority in that because it's such a small area. And so when you then go back into the classroom and you are going back to teaching huge ranges of skills and you are disseminating a lot of knowledge, you cannot possibly be the ultimate authority in all of it. There is too much. And so I think it's right for us as teachers to become comfortable in the classroom using the phrase, I don't know, let's look that up. And I think it's right that we as teachers model to our children the fact that we don't know everything about our subject. The the kids at my school, particularly the younger ones, will often ask me whether I know all the words in French. And I will quite happily say no, because I don't need to. Um, I know lots of words in French. There are big domains, uh, there are big areas of vocabulary that I'm missing. Uh, the very common one among polyglots is birds. Uh, most of us can't name birds in our foreign language. Uh, and lots of us actually can't name birds in our first language either. Um, I'm not so bad with birds, I'm happy to say. Um, my areas of weakness tend to be about transport, because I can't drive. Um, so, you know, if somebody opened up the bonnet of a car, I couldn't in English name any of the parts that were underneath it because I don't have to. I don't drive, so I don't need to know what those things are called. And if I never have to do that in my first language, I certainly never have to do it in my second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth. Um, and then these things don't exist in my seventh, eighth and ninth because they're all um, ancient languages. Um, I also have a missing area around um like newborn babies so words like rattle and bottle and crib and car seat i don't know those either um because i think i only know one person 
in a non-English speaking country who has had a child recently. Um, and so again, th those are words that I don't need to know. Do I think that that means that I'm not fluent in my languages? No, because fluency means having to, or having the vocabulary that you need to be able to converse confidently, to be able to get your point across um, with ease and to make sure that you are understood. Yes, I would struggle to have a conversation about cars in French, in Chinese, in Japanese, um, but I would struggle to have a conversation about cars in English. And I don't think anybody would argue that they weren't fluent in their mother tongue. My ease with saying to a child, I don't know, let's look that up. I don't know, let's get out the dictionary, um, hasn't always been there. When I started as a teacher, when I was an NQT, I did kind of subscribe to the idea that the teacher should be the authority and so the teacher should know. And, and I did feel for a long time like if a child asked me a question and I didn't know, that it was it was almost like an attack on who I was because I was the teacher, therefore I ought to know. And I built my teacher persona around the idea of I should know this stuff. And it has it did take me probably six or seven years in the classroom to become comfortable with the idea that I can't possibly know it all. And to come around to the idea that actually demonstrating to the child what to do when I don't know, especially in this day and age where knowledge is so accessible on my computer, on my phone, you know, I have knowledge in my pocket. Um, but that is something that is very, very useful for us to be able to demonstrate. And I think is, is in some ways better than us just showing off the stuff that we do know by standing up in front of a PowerPoint. You may find the role models, uh, indeed.com says, inside or outside of your workplace. And again, I think that's really important. Um, you know, the idea that we can, we can draw on this inspiration, we can draw on these things from all sorts of domains. I mentioned on the show a couple of weeks ago a book that I read um, about high performance and how all of the examples in that book came from the world of sport. Um, I am not sporty in the least. Uh, again, I can't even pretend to be. But I did find reading that book, a lot of the stories that I read were very inspirational because to me, they were about people who were working really hard, who were trying their best, who were developing their skills, and I could relate to that. I could be inspired by that, even though it was a different domain to me. And again, I think that about the, the children who come into my classroom, it is probably easier for me to be a role model to the linguist children who come in, the ones who are interested in languages, who are interested in um, classical civilization, you know, the ones who want to know about my subject. I can be a role model to them without really thinking, just by being passionate about my subject, by being interested. But I can also demonstrate to the children who are not so interested in my subject and come because they have to, you know, because GCSE language is compulsory or whatever it might be. I can still show them what it is to work hard, 
what it is to be good at your subject, what it is to look things up when, when you don't know. And I can give them the transferable inspiration. I can give them the transferable skills to take into the domains that they are interested in, the domains that they are going to go on to study at A-level, at university, whatever it might be. And again, as teachers, I think it's important for us to look for role models both in our own schools and in other schools. You know, and again, I will I will give props to Flora for being an inspiration to anybody who follows her on social media at the beginning of this week and, and the grace with which she dealt with everything that kind of followed with regards to her inspection, uh, but also from other industries. Because people who do well, people who succeed, and of course, success is going to look different to everybody. The definition of success is different for everybody. Um, they are inspirational people, and we can learn from them, we can draw from them, regardless of what, uh, what domain they are in. So what does a role model look like? What are these traits that we are looking for? According to this guide from Indeed.com, um, most role models display similar characteristics. They remain confident in their abilities and in that of their co-workers. And I think that's really important because, like I said at the top of the show with regards to Ofsted, it's very important to be able to help people to get better. And a lot of that is about... Um, is about recognizing what people do well and going you are fantastic at x y and z i would like please to come and watch your lesson if that's okay so that i can learn how to do that because again in the same way that we can't know everything about our subject we can't be good at we can't be um outstanding in every area of pedagogy and so, you know, being able to recognize the people around us who are better than us at certain things and being open to learning from them is really important. The guide says that there are a range of traits that uh, the good role models have, and then it lists them. So we're going to go through each one in turn and just think about how we can apply these to teaching. So it starts with accountability. It says role models take responsibility for their actions and admit when they make mistakes. And that's really important. And again, I think that as a teacher, that's really hard. I'm going to um, I'm going to use an example again from this week where a, a, a student skipped one of my lessons. Uh, that was the, the automatic punishment for that in our behavior policy is detention. Um, which I stand by, I support, and so I put the child in detention. Uh, now, this child and I, we had an email exchange back and forth, um, and the child was very sorry, he was very contrite, and skipped my lesson, but had what eventually came out to be a justifiable reason. So at that point, I was able to say, okay, well... I didn't have all the information at the beginning. It's taken us a couple of days for me to get all of the information, 
But now that I have it, I can see that what I did was not the right thing to do because you have a reason. So I'm very sorry for that. And I'm going to take you out of detention. But the lesson for you to learn from this is to make sure that we have all of the information at the beginning so that we can follow the appropriate course of action. Now, I wasn't actually wrong as far as I'm concerned, because I followed what was in my behavior policy. But had the student given me all of the information that I had needed right at the start, the whole thing could have been avoided. And I felt that I was right to apologize um, because I had made a decision without having all of the information. But at the same time, my student was able to understand the importance of giving me all of the information so that I could make the right decision. So there was accountability both ways there. Um, it goes on to say they can inspire others to do the same by making their teams aware of their mistakes and how they plan to correct them. And again, that can be really difficult as teachers because we are used to being in charge, we are used to being the authority figure, we are used to getting things right. We're also used to being judged. We have audiences of 30, 35 children all day, every day, talking about what we do to each other, to their friends, to their parents, anything that we say gets scrutinized. Um, we always see on social media, you know, uh, snaps that are sent via Snapchat of children about their teachers. Uh, we have inspectorates come in, we are judged by our senior leaders, we are constantly under scrutiny. And I think there can often be a defensiveness amongst teachers. Because we are so constantly under scrutiny, that with our colleagues, at least with the people that we feel are on a par with us, we want to be seen to know what we are doing. And so it can be really hard to admit that you have done something wrong, that you've made a mistake. But actually, that's normal. That's human. And the same things that we say to our students, everybody makes mistakes. And the important thing is how you deal with it and how you learn from it applies to us as well. And so if you're going to be a good role model, not just for your students, but also for your colleagues, you need to be able to say to them, yep, I was wrong. I didn't do this properly. This was the result. And so in order to make it better next time, I am going to. My year nine exams, again, I've just marked them yesterday. My children generally did as well as I thought they were going to. There were no real surprises. But as I looked at the kind of lower attainment end, I thought my students, those students perform better in class than they did in the exam. And so I think that maybe I didn't do enough to make sure that they were as prepared as they could have been for their exam. Maybe I could have given them some more specific MFL related revision strategies. Maybe I could have provided them with some extra um, revision materials to use. And so I said that to my head of department, kind of as part of my own results analysis, I said, generally, I'm happy with these results. I'm happy with what they suggest about my practice this year. At this end of the, the range, I think that this has gone wrong. 
Uh, and so this is how I'm going to make sure it doesn't happen again next year. Now, it could be that we look at those children's profiles and we go, OK, these lower percentages, that's fine. That's within their range. Um, and that's another perception. But as far as I'm concerned, I made that mistake. And so I'm going to to address it and I'm going to make sure that I don't make it again. Um, before I move on to the next one, Tim has texted in. Good morning to you. Tim is a friend of the show. Um, I always love when he texts in, when he participates. He says, um, I have people I consider role models, but I feel like I've cherry picked aspects of their personas, the things I'd like to emulate in my own life. So I guess what I'm saying is there's no one person I aspire to be like, but there are lots of people who have characteristics I'd like to adopt with my inherent ones. I really like that. And I think that's really healthy um, because I think if you pick a role model and you say, I want to be like this one person, that's kind of bordering on stalkery. Um, and, you know, there are it, it's an interesting question, isn't it, about inherent characteristics? Who are we at our core? What can we control and what can we not control? Um, but I think looking at a range of different people from a range of different walks of life and going, oh, actually, yeah, that's really cool. I want to do that. Or no, that doesn't work for me because of environmental factors or um, inherent factors to you. Um, I think that's really good. And I think that helps you to cultivate an individuality so that you aren't just a clone of somebody else but you are your own person. Um, I think that's also very good for a person's sense of self-esteem because it shows that, or it reinforces in your own mind over and over again, the knowledge that you don't have to be somebody else. You can just pick and choose things that you like from other people and, and use those to make yourself better, to improve without having to become somebody else because you are good as you are. Um, I really like that. I think that's a very admirable attitude to have. And I think also it ties in quite nicely with what we've been talking about, because, again, if if you have a child in your class who is like Tim and who is picking and choosing positive aspects from different people that they encounter, you need to make sure that you are displaying some emulatable characteristics. You need to make sure that you are displaying something that that child might be able to pick and choose to build their own positive persona. I like that very much. I would be interested to know, uh, and this is a whole different show, but I would be interested to know how, or I would be interested to know the proportion of those people you try and emulate who are real and those who are um, fictional. Because, of course, media dominates our lives so much. The books that we read, the shows that we watch. Uh, and it does so for our students as well, you know, and they've got the additional domain of the influences that they follow. And so it's quite interesting to see or to think about how we take these traits, whether we take them from real people, whether we take them from characters on TV, in books, and we think, oh, that's really cool, I want to be like that or whether we take them from the very polished personas of influencers uh, and the extent to which that can be actually emulated. 
Um, but like I said, I think that's a whole other show on its own. Um, the Indeed.com article lists hard work as the second characteristic of a positive role model. It says effective role models work hard when completing their tasks and they may frequently complete more than what's expected of them. Once they complete their work, they may offer to help colleagues with additional work as well. They display a positive and confident attitude and show their eagerness to help however they can. Now, this is a bit of a double-edged sword, I think, particularly in the teaching profession. Because how often do we hear and how often do we say, oh, she is such a good teacher because of all of the extra time she spends with her students. We do in our profession idolise, glorify unpaid labour. And we do glorify the idea of going above and beyond. Again, that's a, a huge buzzword in education. I think in most professions, if we're honest, the idea of going above and beyond what's expected of you. And that is a good thing, because honestly, it's only by going above and beyond that you can enact positive change. If you are in a situation where you want something to change, it's not going to unless you do something different. Unless you go above and beyond what you are currently doing. Because if you just carry on with what you are doing right now, it's going to stay the same. That's why it is as it is. So hard work is very important because it is only through hard work and it is only through that going above and beyond that you are going to enact any kind of positive, meaningful change. On the flip side of that, we need to be careful of work-life balance, of the importance of work-life balance and of what we glorify in the workplace because what we don't want is to lead to a culture of people burning out because they want to be a good role model and think that one of the best ways they can do that is by working all the hours God sends and not taking any time for their own self-care, for their own, uh, their own nurturing. So yeah, we're going to be very careful with that one. Positivity is the next one. Now, I've done a show on positivity. Uh, where we talked about positivity, negativity, and the toxic sides of both, so toxic positivity and toxic negativity. Uh, but the the writers at Indeed.com say, an, an effective role model maintains a positive attitude even when they experience challenges inside or outside the workplace. They look at the benefits of each situation and encourage those around them to do the same. Their positive attitude can inspire others in the workplace to display the same confidence and optimism. Back in September, I did a show where I interviewed Teresa Doherty, and uh, we talked about how she was able to balance being a primary school teacher with being mum to a chronically ill child. And her story please do go back and listen to that interview if you haven't done so, because it is very inspirational. Her story is very positive because we talked a lot about how she was, she had to leave what was going on outside of the workplace at the door because the children in her care needed her. 
They needed her focus. They needed her concentration. And we talked about how she was able to take the highs and the lows of um, of, of mothering a chronically ill child and, and use those as both teachable moments and as moments of personal growth. So I think positivity is important. And again, it's not toxic positivity. It's not gaslighting. It's not saying everything is wonderful. There are no problems in our school. There are no problems in our workplace. But what it means is going, yes, this is a, an issue and this is how we solve it. And then when an issue is raised, you also look for what's going well. Because again, it can be particularly in our profession where we are always looking to improve. It can be really easy to ignore what's going well. So you need that balance. You need that balance of this is bad, but this is how it's going to get better. Uh, and again, that relates back to accountability. And also, this is good. This is how I'm going to learn because this is good practice. Persistence is the next one. Role models persist in their work to achieve an effective outcome. They encounter obstacles with a sense of urgency and resolve. Others in the company and work environment can notice their dedication, their dedication and strive to show the same effort and attitude. It's interesting how all of these kind of roll together, isn't it? Because that's kind of what we were just saying about positivity. This idea that you identify a problem and you work to solve it. You achieve an effective outcome. You encounter an obstacle and you get around that obstacle with a sense of urgency and resolve. You don't let things fester. Integrity. Moral integrity serves as an important trait for role models. People in the workplace often admire them because they reflect honesty and follow their company's rules and guidelines. This includes being on time and remaining productive during work hours and complying with company policies. I think it's really important to act with integrity because I think at the end of every school day, when you sit down in your classroom or when you get home and you, you try and decompress, you are the one that deals with the outcomes of every decision that you made. And we make thousands of decisions as teachers, often in the moment, often on a whim, often per the story I told not too long ago, without having all of the information. And we then have to work through, we have to do the emotional labor of figuring out what all of that means, of figuring out how we deal with all of that. And I think if you can sit down and say, I acted with integrity, if you can sit down and say, I made the wrong decision by punishing this child without having all of the information, but I did so because I was following my moral compass, and I then did the right thing when I eventually had all of the information. That's the best that we can do. So I do think actually that acting with integrity is a, um, is a form of self-care, because it means that you can sit down every evening and go, yes, I did my best according to my moral standards, according to my moral compass. And respect. Respect is the final one on our list. 
Um, role models focus on treating employees, co-workers and customers with respect in every situation. A good way for role models to gain respect from others is to always show respect to them. The mutual display of respect creates a fair and positive work environment for everyone involved. This is really important for young people. In my experience, young people need to feel respected, particularly the older young people that we teach, you know, particularly when we get to the middle and upper end of secondary. Young children need to feel that things are fair. Young children have an almost obsession with fairness. And, and that actually is their version of respect. If they think something is fair, then they feel respected. They feel like their autonomy as a person is being respected. Whereas as children get older, in my experience, they tend to need more individual respect. And I was talking about this with some year 13s midweek. Um, I was in the Chinese lesson and we were talking about school rules and pressures and, and, and all of that sort of thing. Uh, and we were, we were talking about how different teachers deal with different situations. And one of them asked me outright what my philosophy is when dealing with children. You know, how do I think um, I keep my classes under control? Um, because they said to me, you know, you don't ever seem to have problems with children in your class. And, you know, I said, thank you very much. That was very kind. Um, but for me, it just is about respect. It's about having that relationship and going, I'm not going to waste your time. And I don't want you to waste mine. And, and I don't know, for me, it's it just boils down to having that relationship with your young people and respecting them and showing them that you do understand their autonomy, you do understand their struggles, um, you do understand what they want out of life and that what they want out of life might not be your subject, but that you're going to use the time that they are with you in order to improve their lives through your subject, to improve their lives through your teaching. And I think that's something that young people recognize. They know when an adult respects them. They know when an adult doesn't respect them, but is pretending. And of course they know when an adult doesn't respect them and isn't pretending and they will respond accordingly. So it is important, I think in any profession, but again, especially in teaching to show respect to the people that we are dealing with, the young people in our care. So those are the one, two, three, four, five, six, six traits of role models, according to indeed.com. I like those. Um, I like those very much. I think they are a good kind of pathway to try and live by as teachers. I think they are good traits for us to try and emulate because again, we don't choose to be role models. I didn't choose to be a teacher so that I can be a role model. I chose to be a teacher because I like language and I want to share my, my joy of language with other people. But just by being there, by being in front of them, by being somebody that they encounter, if not every day, two, three times a week, I am a role model for them. 
And I think that I have a responsibility to behave that way. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. For the last part of the show today, I want to have a look at um, a research seminar that was delivered by Dr. Simon Brownhill uh, of the University of Lancaster, um, which was called Build Me a Male Role Model, a Critical Exploration of the Perceived Qualities and Characteristics of Men in the Early Years. As a former primary teacher, um, and I now have the privilege of working across primary and secondary. Um, I was always, I think, as many of the men both on the on my ITT course and in the schools that I've worked in, I was aware of the not pressures on male teachers particularly, but there is a pressure on male teachers to be a role model. And there is a unique perception of male teachers in early years and in primary that I think does tie into the idea of role models and does tie into the idea of, of what a man in education should be. Um, and I kind of just want to, to explore that a little bit today um, through uh, through this this seminar that was delivered back in 2013. There are four main drivers, um, according to Dr. Brownhill, of role model behaviour amongst male teachers, particularly in primary. Um, so we have got from Carrington et al. 2007, the gender gap. So primary and early years teachers are by and large female. Um, that gender gap does flip when we get to secondary. Um, although if you then at secondary look at different subjects, it emerges again. So of course it's going to depend on how, um, how closely you consider a school community. Uh, there is, according to Skelton, 2009, a feminization of teaching. Uh, the idea that the, the teacher default is female and that the way in which a teacher um, depicts themselves is feminine rather than masculine, which of course is, is aligning to a gender binary. Uh, there is the father figure idea put forward by Ivans in 2008. And then, of course, there is the old cliche, as Park in 2009 points out, of strong male role models. So those are the four main drivers behind any and all research into male role models in school. Um, I am doing a piece of research myself on this as part of my educational doctorate. Uh, and I'm going to be honest, it seemed a bit weird at first to be talking about it, um, because a lot of the gender research that is done 
looks at the depiction or the role of women, because women, of course, are the gender that has always been oppressed in our society. And so there was part of me that was thinking, am I a bad feminist if I am looking at depictions of masculinities and if I am looking at men in teaching, you know, should the focus be on women because they have so little focus? But then it occurred to me that actually, if I'm going to research from my own experience, then I need to talk about uh, male role models. And if I am going to create any kind of balance in school, you know, if we're going to look at women leaders and and what that means, we also need to look at male leaders to figure out how or if there are differences, where those differences might be and how we can reconcile that. There are some common sense truth claims um, that were laid out at this seminar. The first one comes from Ashley 2002, uh, page one, and it says, if boys see men reading books and doing lots of neat writing, then boys will avidly read books and produce volumes of neat writing. And I think that's really important because that fights against the idea of boys will be boys. You know, you see a messy exercise book and you go, oh, well, that's just boys. They don't write neatly. Or you see a boy pull out a football magazine rather than a book during reading time. And you just go, oh, he's a boy. Of course, he's going to read an, uh, a magazine. They don't like to read novels. And I think it's very easy to dismiss what our boys in school do on gender grounds rather than having a look at the role models that they have, the people that they see around them, the behavior that they see around them, and that they feel that they should emulate. McPhee 2007 says that, boy, uh, says that schools and settings should be made boy-friendly again which is problematic as far as I'm concerned, because if we're going along a gender binary and we are separating out boys and girls, then making a setting boy-friendly by nature would decrease the girl-friendliness of it. And I think that what we actually need to do is, is make schools and settings friendly for everybody, friendly for our students as individuals, regardless of where they are on the gender spectrum. Um, Skelton 2002 talks about the, in inverted commas, replacement father, who can relate, support, model and provide better for boys. Now again, I'm always slightly uncomfortable with this idea of father figure, um, mostly because I have no interest in being a father. Uh, you know, having children is not on my radar at all. I, I do not want to. Uh, that is not a pressure that I want in my life. And so the idea that I should be that for a young man is very stressful. And I also think it's very insulting. 
particularly if that young man's father is in the picture. Uh, you know, separated parents does not always mean that a young man does not have his biological father in the picture or a stepfather. And even if the, the biological father is not in the picture, there will be or there may well be older brothers, grandfathers, uncles, um, older friends who are modelling the behaviour. So I actually don't think that male teachers act as replacement fathers, as Skelton suggested, but I do think that it is important to um, demonstrate those relational attitudes, the supportive attitudes, and the provision. Um, because I just think that is important for everybody to see. I think it's important for everybody to understand that adults should be respectful towards other people. And then there is um, Brian2008, who said, um, inspiring children to feel more confident, to work harder, and to behave better. And again, I think that's just true of all teachers, regardless of where we fall on the gender spectrum. There are existing tensions, of course, in all of these um, all of these discussions. I spoke before about how I felt uncomfortable at the idea of, of recentering men in teaching. Um, and this was this was put quite nicely by um, Smedley in 1998, who said that it once again looks at women as being the problem and men as the solution. Because if we frame this idea that um, boys are missing male role models in school, then it suggests that the role models that they're getting from the, the female teachers are not enough, and that men once again need to come in and save the day. So we are continuing to feed into this kind of male-centric, stereotyped version of the world that, you know, in 2023, we should be moving away from. However, we do need diversity, we need all of our children to see diversity, so in the same way that our boys do need those female role models, they do also need the male role models, which is not happening um, in the um, uh, at length, it is not happening in the way that perhaps it should. So there was a study done where characteristics of um, uh, characteristics of male role models for boys in the early years were ranked in terms of how important they were. So there was an interview conducted where the participants were asked what qualities or characteristics male role models for boys in the early years, that's ages naught to eight, should have. And what came up actually was really interesting. In first place, the most important characteristic, according to these people who were interviewed, is to was to be reliable and able to demonstrate a positive attitude towards learning. So that's all about attitude. It's all about showing that education is important, showing that learning is important. In place number two was trustworthy. Third position was kind. 
Fourth was respectful. And fifth was a good sense of humor. And that fifth one is really interesting to me only because I read something recently and I'm sorry, but I don't remember where, which said that there is something in the male psyche that needs to be perceived as being funny. Men prioritize being funny or being perceived as funny over lots of other different traits. And so I think it's really interesting that as far as I'm concerned, the very first kind of gendered thing on that list is the good sense of humor and it occurs fifth because i think the others the reliability the trustworthiness the kindness the respectful i think they are gender neutral i think they are important to teachers of all gender um i think it's that good sense of humor that is according of course just to the preliminary research that i've read um important specifically for men and to demonstrate to other young men. Um, the additional qualities and characteristics that were most common during this study came up as being a, being a good listener, being fair, and again, we talked about that being necessary for all people when they are dealing with young children, because young children like things to be fair, uh, being approachable, being honest, being consistent, being supportive, being themselves, which of course opens a lot of questions um, or a lot of conversations about um, gender identity, sexuality, all of those sorts of things that have come up once again in the news over the last couple of weeks. Um, and as I said on the show last week about who decides what is and is not appropriate for a teacher to share about themselves, you know, is it, if a male teacher can talk about his wife, can a male teacher talk about his husband? Because if he cannot, then that's not allowing him to be himself. Um, and then there's being understanding is there on that list as well. So again, all of those things are fairly gender neutral. They are important in role models, I think, of all genders. And this comes out in the discussion in this seminar. The, the conclusions say most qualities characteristics were associated with personal good person attributes, trustworthy and respectful. Um, they identified the need for the male role model specifically to have a good sense of humour, as we've just discussed. The emulation of professional characteristics, being professional, having those boundaries. And also the androgynous nature of many of the qualities and characteristics, the gender neutral nature of many of them. They tend to be, according to Jones 2007, qualities and characteristics that emulate the millennium man, the kind of new man, the feminist male. And there is the importance of the qualities and characteristics that are natural. Because of course, children can see through us. Children know when we're lying. Children know when we are performing. They know when we are just trying to get on their good side. And so it's about, you know, that being themselves that we decided was necessary. That is very important because a child isn't going to want to be themselves around you if you're not being yourself around them. 
conclusions that were made, and again, I've just done a very quick summary of this study, but the conclusions that were made are that no two role models are the same. Different contexts, different situations, different expectations seek different requirements of the role model. There is a pressure on male role models to emulate different qualities and characteristics. My very last placement class was a boy-heavy, um, not behaviorally difficult, but difficult in the context of the school class, and I was put there because I was a male trainee, and so the assumption was that I would have good control over them. Um, I, at that point in my training, still hadn't mastered um, good behavior management, so I actually was not what they needed, but there was that gendered assumption there. Um, the negative impact of the role model on those children who are repelled by the emulation of fake or false qualities or characteristics. So again, you know, a very common question that I get asked, particularly in the middle years, so from children who were like in year six and year seven, the boys who are 11 or 12, they ask me which football team I support. Um, and I tell them that I don't. Um, I tell them that football isn't really my thing. Because if I tried to bluff my way through it in order to create some kind of relationship with them, they would see through that and they would be put off by that because they would think it was weird that I was lying to them about that. So what I would rather do and what we should all be striving for is building these relationships with our young people through what we actually have in common rather than through perceived gender, um, uh, gender markers. And then there's a general lack of clarity pointed out by Jones 2006, which I think has probably come across in my explanation, my discussion of this particular study. There is a lack of clarity as to whether it is important for young boys to have role models who are showing a traditional style of masculinity, whether it's important for them to have role models showing an a more androgynous style of masculinity and what that means. And I think, um, and again, gender studies is not my area at all. This is just something that I find interesting. I think this comes down to a lack of clarity in what masculinity actually means. And in terms of what it is that we are expected to treat, to, to teach our boys in terms of what it means to be men. Um, because if we ourselves are not clear on that, then we cannot teach it to begin with. So there we go. That is our discussion this week on role models. Um, I hope that you have found it interesting. I hope that uh, you've all been able to take something away from it. I know that in kind of the things that I've looked at this morning um, while doing my preliminary research for the show, lots of things that I've thought about, lots of ways that that being a role model is, in my mind, just being a good person. Um, you know, the, the list that I read from Indeed.com, and I will tweet out that link shortly, um, as far as I was concerned, they are just attributes of being a good person. But maybe ultimately that's what being a role model is. Maybe being a role model isn't knowing everything, and, you know, it isn't even being the best teacher in the world. It's just showing our young people how to be a good person so that we can make the world a better place. 
Oh, thank you, Tim. Tim has texted in to say it was a great show. I appreciate that very, very much. Uh, we've got a really exciting rest of the day uh, on Teachers Talk Radio today. Uh, normally, I tell you that I'm the only person and I encourage you to go and work through our backlist. While I do still encourage you to work through our backlist, um, I will just point out that we have got Asha doing her very first show with us on Twitter Spaces at 11 o'clock. So please do go and refill your coffee and then join that Twitter space at 11. And then we've got Graham coming on to do the evening show at five. So that's a really exciting um, rest of the Saturday. Then we have got the Week in Review at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. That's a live video stream. Um, I think Maud is going to be doing that one. And then we've got Christopher at 8 p.m. here on Podbean. So we have got a really cool rest of the weekend. Please do check out as many of those shows as possible. Um, go and show my co-presenters, my co-hosts, some of the amazing support that we get over here on Saturday Breakfast. Have yourselves a great week. Those of you who are already on Easter holidays, make sure that you enjoy this first week. Those of you like me who are still in school this week and break up for the beginning of Holy Week, um, know that we can get there. It's five days and we can do that. Thank you very much, everybody. It's been a pleasure as always, and I will speak to you next week. Goodbye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.